Exodus 12, 1 through, I think, 13, 16. We're not going to read all of that. Some of you are starting to panic. I'm not going to read all of that, but I, th- I think 12, 1 through 13, 16 is probably best taken together as a unit. We're not going to try to cover all of that, but I would encourage you to, whether it's this afternoon or this evening, even in opportunities that you may have to go back and even in your own time in the Word, maybe to read over some of the, the passages or the verses in this unit that we don't necessarily specifically address ourselves. All of this in 12, 1 through 13, 16 ultimately is dealing with the Passover. This is the climactic event of God's work of salvation and deliverance for his people to bring them out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt into freedom and fellowship with him. So as we move through, the, the general idea that we want to try to draw out of this passage, I, th- I think what the passage itself is, uh, is demonstrating to us, if we could sum it up for our big idea, is to say something like, the Lord saves his people from death and makes them a worshiping community. The Lord saves his people from death and makes them a worshiping community. And just to get a feel for what this passage has to offer, follow along with me as I read, starting at 12.1. We're going to read a, a pretty healthy chunk of Scripture. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month... They are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You will keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs along with its entrails." And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning, you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat it in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments." I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day... You will remove leaven from your houses, for whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall have a holy assembly, and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all will be done on them, except what must be eaten by every person. That alone may be prepared by you. You shall also observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you will observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the 14th day of the month at evening, you will eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses. For whoever eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. You shall not eat anything leavened in all your dwellings. You shall eat unleavened bread." 
Then Moses called to all the elders, or called for all the elders of Israel, and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families, and slay the Passover lamb. You will take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. And you will observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will observe this right. And when your children say to you, what does this right mean to you? You shall say, it's a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed low and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord to us. Bow with me in prayer. Father, even as we were just singing about how we can be overwhelmed by the darkness of night, we ask that through your word and the ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would remind us and convince us once again that you have shown yourself to be, from the Old Testament pages all the way through the New Testament, a God who is present to preserve and protect his people. Help us to remember, Father, and to know for certain that we have been saved and delivered, not by our own efforts, but through the work that you have accomplished through your Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we ask for this. Amen. So the Lord saves his people from death, and makes them a worshiping community. We have three points that we want to try, to try to communicate as best we can in the time that we have, and here they are. Let me give them to you up front, and then we'll walk through them. Number one, the Lord's salvation is secured by the death of the Lamb. The Lord's salvation is secured by the death of the Lamb. Number two, the Lord's salvation looks to the future. The Lord's salvation looks to the future. And number three, the Lord's salvation creates a people for worship. So the Lord's salvation is secured by the death of the Lamb. The Lord's salvation looks to the future. And the Lord's salvation creates a people for worship. We're going to have to bounce around a little bit here from verse to verse in order to be able to work our way through the passage. So for the moment, why don't you start with me in chapter 12 at verse 13. Chapter 11 that JT preached from last week, which if you were not here to hear that, you ought to go to our website and you ought to listen to the audio of that sermon. That was a very encouraging, hope-filled sermon. You ought to go back and listen to it if you have not heard it. Chapter 11 is giving a preview of this climactic event where now the Lord is going to bring his last final act of judgment on Pharaoh and the Egyptians in order to free his people. We know it and recognize it as the Passover event where the angel of death makes his way through the land of Egypt and kills the firstborn in every household except for the households that are marked out with the blood of the Lamb. One of the things that we want to take note of is the basis for the security that the people have in this salvation. So if you start with me in 1213, listen very carefully to what the word says. 1213, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Skip ahead a little bit further down to verses 22 and 23. When Moses goes, when he receives the instructions from the Lord and then goes to the people to relay the instructions to them, Moses expresses it this way. 
12, 22, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians and then notice, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. Now this seems almost so simple as to not need any comment. I'm not sure that's the case, which is why we're about to comment on it. Notice that what the Lord says to Moses and what Moses relays to the people is that when God is executing judgment on the land in which you live, and by the way, by virtue of the fact that Israel has to be saved from this judgment, there is the implication that even Israel, were it not for God's provision, could fall under that judgment of death. Okay? But notice, the Lord says, when I go through the land and I come to your houses, when I see the blood on the door, I will pass over your house. He does not say when I see the faith in your house, I will pass over. When I see how many people you have in your house, I will pass over. When I see how excited you are, how fearful you are, how put together you are, not looking for any of that, he's looking for the blood on the doorpost. Now, let me, let me clarify just briefly here before we, we press this point home. This is not to say that Israel's faith is irrelevant to what's happening here. The very fact that Israel, the families of Israel, would kill, would slaughter a lamb, would mark their doors off with the blood of the lamb, is itself an act of faith and obedience. But here's the point. While that faith in obedience, in response to the word of God, is necessary and essential, it is ultimately not their faith that saves them. It's the death of the lamb that saves them. Some of you are looking at me like, I don't get it. Okay, so here's the point. You got, we're, we're going to picture ourselves as being... In the, in the Israelite camp. So we'll take, uh, we'll take Nathan over here, sitting to my right, and we'll take Jim over here on my left. So Nathan and Jim are good, upstanding Israelite heads of households, and they've received the instructions to kill the Passover lamb for their household and to mark their door off. They're neighbors, and they set about doing the work. Nathan, and I, I don't know if this would be true of Nathan, so this is just an illustration. Nathan can barely do the brush strokes because his hand is shaking so violently. He's so nervous about what is about to happen that night. It's all he can do to keep this little hyssop branch in his hand to paint the door frame. Jim, on the other hand, his neighbor is whistling while he paints his door. And Nathan looks at Jim and says, Jim, what are you doing? Don't you know what's going to happen tonight? Death is coming into the land. Death is going to fall on the households. This is a dark night. Why are you whistling? Why are you so lighthearted? And Jim looks at Nathan and says, well, we're doing what the Lord told us to do, aren't we? The Lord said that we, we, we offer up the lamb, we take the blood of the lamb, we mark our households off, and when he sees the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice, he'll pass over our houses. We don't have anything to worry about. Nathan says, I hope so. Oh, man, I hope so. I'm, I'm telling you, I'm terrified. They go in that night and they begin to eat the Passover meal. 
Jim is thoroughly enjoying having his family seated around the table for this meal. Nathan can barely swallow because his stomach is tied up in knots. He has to force feed himself the mutton that his family is eating. And then the night comes when death moves through the land of Egypt. Which one loses their son? Neither. Why? Because the security that is offered to God's people is not dependent upon the strength of their faith. It depends on the substitute that took their place. You need to know, you need to understand that as much as we like to talk ourselves up, as much as we like to think that we are people of rock-solid faith, that we are weak and frail people. Our faith is rattled with illness, with a financial downturn, with relational dysfunctions and estrangement, with all these sorts of things. And we think in those times, if only my faith were stronger, this would not be happening. If my faith were stronger, God would certainly deliver me. You need to put that thought out of your mind. God has not saved his people on the basis of how good and how pure their faith is. He has saved his people based on the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And so when you stand in the presence of the Ancient of Days, as we were just singing, your plea for admission, if we can frame it that way, will not be let me in, let me enjoy pleasures forevermore because my faith is so strong. That will not be the words off of your mouth. Rather, you and I and all of God's people will say, will you let me enjoy pleasures forevermore? Will you deliver me from eternal death because the blood of the Lamb was shed for me? If you belong to Christ, who is the greater, the true and better Passover Lamb, who stands in as a substitute to save his people from death, if you belong to Christ, you are secure in the sacrifice of Christ. The flip side of that is that outside of the sacrifice and the provision that's made for the blood for God's people, everything outside of that is death. Moses says, you mark your doors off with the blood of the land, and then you don't even come out of your door until it's time. You hide behind the blood of the lamb. You wait there, because that's where you're going to find safety. And then the contrast of that between the protection and the security of God's people is seen in the destruction that comes on the Egyptians. So skip down a little bit further in chapter 12 and look at verse 29. After saying in verse 28 that the sons of Israel went and did what, Moses, what the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron to do, we read in verse 29, Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of cattle. By the way, if you hold your place here and just go back over to chapter 11, 
You've got a similar statement in verse 5. The Lord says, All the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die from the firstborn of the Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the millstones. All the firstborn in the cattle as well. So it really does not matter if you are as bad as what you could be, right? It, you've, you've got sort of a contrast, two opposite ends of the spectrum. You've got Pharaoh on the one hand, who is pridefully and arrogantly opposed all that God has called him to do to set the people free. And then on the other hand, you've got little servant girls. You've got prisoners in a dungeon, and whether you are Pharaoh or whether you're a prisoner in the dungeon, if you and your household have not been marked off by the blood of the Lamb, death comes to your house. This is not to say that God is cold or callous or indifferent to people who have a difficult lot in life. It is to say that outside of the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ, there is no salvation or deliverance from the judgment of God. And it makes no difference whether you are the wealthy and the powerful or you are the down and out. If the blood has not been applied to you, you are not safe. Parents, grandparents, by all means, teach and train your children to be thriving, productive members of society. Encourage them, affirm them, help them with their self-esteem. Do all of those things that good, loving parents do. But listen, parents, listen, grandparents. At the end of the day, if you are not jealously, persistently, passionately, pointing them to Christ, no matter what they do or accomplish in life, they are not safe. Your family members, your co-workers, it does not matter how deep or how dark their sin runs. The fact of the matter is, is that we are all sinners destined for God's judgment unless a substitute is given in our place. If that substitute is given for you, you are safe and secure. If there is not a substitute that has been made and received by you, you are not safe no matter where you are or what you do. By the way, one, one other thing. Can we throw one other thing before we go to point number two? We're going to do it anyway. Chapter 12, just a little odd, little seemingly irrelevant piece of information. In chapter 12, look at verse 46. We didn't, we didn't read this far ahead, so we're, we're skipping to that point. In the instructions about Passover, you have this statement, that it, the Passover meal, is to be eaten in a single house. You are not to bring forth any of the flesh outside of the house, nor are you to break any bone of it. That's oddly specific, isn't it? Who cares? Just as long as we kill it, daub the blood on the doorframe, and eat it, why, why say that you can't save it till morning, you can't break any of the bones? We're not told explicitly. I, th I think what's going on here is that the point is being made that the Passover lamb is being given, is devoted to the sole purpose of saving you from death. Not simply so that you can have a meal or that you can have a snack the next day or you can't invest any sort of other significance into the lamb to make it what you want it to be the next day over. No, 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 no. This lamb... And everything that it is, is given for this express purpose to save you and your household from the judgment that's coming in the form of death. Hold your place here and go to John chapter 19. 
And start with me at verse 32. John 19, 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other who was crucified with him. But coming to Jesus, when they saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has seen us testified, and his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may also believe. And then look at verse 36. For these things came to pass to fulfill the Scripture, not a bone of him shall be broken. Do you hear that? As far back as 1400 B.C., give or take, whatever the date was for the Exodus, when the Lord is saying, this substitute that I'm giving for you is given for the sole purpose of saving you from death. It is whole and complete, and it will do its job. Don't try to make it into anything else other than what I've given it to you for. When God was giving his people those instructions, he was thinking about the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. As if to say, when my people come and see what happens at the cross and the death of Christ, they will come and make the connection that this sacrifice was made for the sole express purpose of delivering them from death. That's why Jesus suffered and died. And if the blood of bulls and goats and lambs, as the author of Hebrews says, is sufficient, to secure us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, how much more will the body and blood of Jesus Christ work out our eternal salvation? Number two, the Lord's salvation looks to the future. Go down to verses 24 and 25 of Exodus 12. You shall observe this event as an ordinance for you and your children forever. When you enter the land which the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you will observe this right. The people have not even had the Passover meal yet. They have not even begun to set foot out of their homes to leave Egypt, and God is already telling them, listen, what all of this is moving towards is more goodness and grace and life in the future. Right? We, we need to drill this home. God's salvation for his people is full and complete. It is both a saving from and a saving to. God saves his people from slavery in Egypt so that he can save them or deliver them to liberty and freedom. He saves them from death so that he can deliver them into life. He delivers them from a strange alien land to deliver them to a new home where they're going to commune with him. People understand, if you lay claim to the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus Christ on your behalf to save you from the death that you deserve, the salvation that the Lord gives to his people is not partial. It is not minimal. It is not the kind of salvation that says, let me get these chains, let me get these burdens off of you, and then you go and make of yourself what you will. That is not salvation. Salvation is being delivered from your slavery to sin so that you can become a child of God. Salvation is recognizing that this place, like Egypt, this place is not my home. There is somewhere better that the Lord is taking us, and I'm going there. That's salvation. But it's not just that the Lord looks and works his salvation in a way that is casting its gaze to the future. The Lord provides 
for future salvation. Every step along the way. Skip down a little bit further. Again, we're still in chapter 12. Look at verse 39. You have the Passover meal that's being celebrated, and along with that, unleavened bread. 1239, they baked the dough which they had brought out of Egypt into cakes of unleavened bread, for it had not become leavened since they were driven out of Egypt and could not delay, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. People, do you hear that? They are not ready for salvation in the sense that this act of salvation is going to be so bold and so dramatic. It happens instantaneously, and they go from being slaves to now being free. Being held to now moving and roaming. They have no time to prepare for this new life that they are stepping into in less than 24 hours. But God knows the life that he is calling his people to. And so the Lord, in his goodness, in his wisdom, in his providence, says, let me tell you what you're going to need for the road ahead. And he gives them food. They didn't have time to do it. The Lord's already taken care of it. He's already taken it into account. He's already provided for it. And as we'll continue to see in Exodus, when this meager little helping of unleavened bread runs out, the Lord's going to give them bread in the desert. Listen, some of you, as you, as you walk the path in, in discipleship, as you follow Christ, for whatever reason, either now or long-term, God has put you in places or in situations that you do not believe you have the capacity or the resources to deal with. You did not know that following Christ would look like this, whatever this is for you. You had no way to prepare for this daily death that you have to undergo as you take up your cross and follow him. And here is the assurance that the Lord gives to his people. Even if you did not know and could not fully comprehend what the Lord was going to lead you to or through, he knew the path that you would take. And his provision was already made for you before you even got there. And the Lord's provision is certain and constant and built and rooted in His faithfulness so that because the Lord says, I am taking you out of there to bring you into here, part of the guarantee, part of the blessing of God's salvation for His people is that not only does He take care of the back and the front end, He takes care of everything in between. And He says, anything that you need to reach the end goal, to reach your destination, to get to me, I will give it. Your deliverance and your salvation was not accomplished by you. God did that through the death of His Son. The thing that will uphold you and sustain you in your walk with the Lord, in your path of discipleship, is not going to be you. It's going to be the faithful provision of God through His Holy Spirit and His Word to feed you and sustain you every waking moment of the day. And He will do it. Number three. We've seen that the Lord's salvation is secured by the death of the Lamb, that the Lord's salvation looks to the future which means that he will provide for us to make it safe to the end. Number three, the Lord's salvation creates a people for worship. This aspect of, of this passage of 12, 1 through 13, 16 is probably, was probably the, the biggest eye-opener for me personally 
in, in studying, reading, preparing for this week. So here it is. Let me give it, let me give it to you. This is the buildup, the, the climactic event, right? We've had nine plagues. Here comes the tenth. This is the one that's going to do it, that's going to break Pharaoh's back and break his will and is going to usher into the freedom of God's people. 12, 1 through 13, 16 is given to this Passover event. Do you know how many verses actually detail the actual event? Two. Let me show them to you so that you don't have to just take my word for it. Skip down in verse 12 at verse 29. Now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the cattle. Pharaoh arose in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was no home where there was not someone dead. That's it. It's done. Two verses. What a letdown. I'm wanting some carnage, right? I'm anticipating that the Lord has been saving up a serious right hand that he's about to unleash, and we're going to revel in the comeuppance that Pharaoh is about to receive. And when we get to the event, it's just stated matter-of-factly. It happened. Death was executed. Judgment came. The Egyptians cried out, and then we turn the page, and Pharaoh tells the people to leave. Two verses. If you want to be a little bit more generous, you could say maybe 10. 12 run through, through 13, 16, you have about 60-something verses, close to 70 verses. If, let's just be generous, if you take those 10 verses that deal with the actual Passover event, the death angel going through and, and all of that and the people getting up and leaving, if you have close to 70 verses and 10 of those go to the event, that means you've got somewhere in the neighborhood of what? Depending on how you count, 50, 60 verses that are given to instructions about how to eat the meal. Isn't that backwards? Shouldn't we be getting a lot more information, a lot more graphic imagery of the act of judgment and just maybe a few side notes about now in the future, here's what you want to do. You want to commemorate this with a meal. I think that the point that's being made in this passage by doing it that way is that it does not take away by any means the historical reality, the fact that God actually did something in Egypt in time and space. But precisely because this event was unrepeatable, it would not happen again, what the people need to know, especially from that day forward, is how will we remember and respond to what the Lord has done for us in this event? And so 50-something verses are given to say things like, this is going to be a memorial. You are going to celebrate this as a feast to the Lord. This is going to be a permanent ordinance for you. In 1216, you're going to have a holy assembly. In verse 27, this is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord. The people bowed low and worshipped. 1242 says that this is a night to be observed for the Lord, for having brought, out, brought them out from the land of Egypt. This night is for the Lord to be observed by all the sons of Israel throughout their generations. And again in verse 47, all the congregation of Israel are to celebrate this. Don't miss how significant this is. The people that the Lord saves and sets free he shapes them and makes them into a worshiping community. From this point on, the Lord says, 
you are going to mark yourself out. You will be distinguished by the fact that every year you gather together in your homes and your people across the land, you're going to gather together and you're going to rehearse this salvation that the Lord has brought to you. Now, let me ask, in light of all the attention that God gives to how they're to eat the Passover meal, to what they're supposed to do with unleavened bread, and we haven't even gotten to 13 about redeeming the firstborn and the significance there, is it conceivable that any Israelite in his right mind would say, it's a good suggestion, Lord, I'll give it some thought. In other words, when that time rolls around the next year and the year after that and the year after that, what are God's people going to do? Are they going to say, well, we did it last year. No real reason to do it again this year. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, we, we remember. We got it written down. One of the problems that we face in a very affluent, mobile transitory society and culture that is based on free market ideas where we pick and choose whatever we want is that we bring that sort of mentality or that mindset into the Christian faith. God has said through His Son, Christ Himself, things like, do this in remembrance of me referring to the Lord's Supper, to communion. Have you ever thought about the fact that as, what's the word that we're looking for? As unsettling as it would have been to see that these people are not joining in to celebrate Passover, it should be that unsettling when other of God's people say that they're not going to join in and participate in things like the Lord's Supper. Where we remember and rehearse and rejoice over the salvation that God has provided for us. When God says things like, in the New Testament, do not forsake your assembling together. Sing together. Speak to one another in psalms and songs and spiritual songs. And then we just check out. What, what sets us apart? What will set us apart in this land, in this culture, in this society if we are not being distinctively recognized by the fact that we regularly gather together and celebrate God's salvation. If in the Old Covenant, an Israelite member were to back out of the regular gatherings of God's people and were to elect on his own or her own not to participate in those meals, that would be a major red flag. Is it any less today? Listen, if you're, if you're watching, where, where am I going to look? I'll look here. If you're watching this on live stream and you have the ability to be here to gather with your brothers and sisters, the live stream is not a substitute. If you're going to download the audio of this sermon, all two of you, <laughs> if you're going to download the audio of this sermon because you figure, well, I wasn't there on Sunday, but I can catch it any time that I want, all fine and good, right? But if that's your regular practice and you do not have the means by which you have been set apart and distinguished by your regular gathering together with the covenant community of God, you're missing something. And let me not just put this on the people who are perhaps absent or who are flighty. Let me also then draw this encouragement 
to you who are seated here in the pew. If you know of a brother or sister who is falling into this kind of habit, you ought to lovingly, graciously tell them, this is not the way. God calls a people to himself and he calls them to congregate and assemble so that our joy can be magnified, so that we can learn from one another what we could not learn on our own, so that we can be the hands and the feet of Christ, so that we can enjoy this life together. I don't say that in any way to merely level a, a false guilt trip or self-condemnation, but just to say, look at how good the Lord is to his people to give this kind, of this kind of salvation to us and then to give us the privilege to celebrate it every week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. You have redeemed for yourself people from every nation, tribe, and tongue who were born into sin, who had no desire to seek out after you, and yet you have claimed us for yourself. You have given us new birth. You have united us to the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, so that we know that we are safe and secure in his work, not in ours. You have given us your Holy Spirit to seal us in this salvation that is ours and to guide us and direct us all the way home. Father, we ask that more than just out of a sense of obligation or duty that you would create within our hearts a real, genuine, deep-seated gratitude as we continue to meditate and reflect on just how miraculous our salvation is, and that in response to that, we would gladly offer up our praises to you, not simply in private, although that is perfectly fine and appropriate, but that we would anticipate the opportunity to come and to share in that joy and celebration with one another. We thank you for all the things that you have done for us, and we ask that you would help us as we continue to grow and mature to respond appropriately, and it's in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior, that we pray this. Amen. Amen. Let's lift our voices loud and proud as we respond to this wonderful message from, from the Lord.
Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. Amen. Thank you. You're free to socialize and greet one another. <laughs> 